source of true delight whom I unseen adore unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more oh that I might love thee more you're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian the following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding dying. The scripture reading this morning is in the book of Ruth, chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. In the Pew Bible, the blue Pew Bible in front of you, that is on page 224. Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction... The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephathra and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. O gracious Lord, we thank you that in all of Scripture you shine fair. We praise you that you reveal yourself to us in ways that 
we many times don't expect in your word. We thank you, Lord, that at every point in your word, you are seeking to unveil your beauty and your glory for our good. Oh, Lord, may we see you afresh. May we see your grace in the lives of these saints. May we be encouraged to trust you and to live out our lives in Jesus Christ all the more. Oh, Lord, come and visit us in your grace and mercy. We deserve nothing, and yet we are your children in Christ. You have acted to draw us to yourself. Lord, we belong to you. Lord Jesus, we are your body. You cherish us and nourish us because we are your body. You, in that sense, as Paul says, must, you must love us and love us deeply and long and forever. Oh, Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you that we belong to you and we are joined to you, our head. We would trust you. Therefore, you would nourish and cherish us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the, the great paradoxes that we talk a lot about that we see again and again in Scripture is that of the one that we, ex, in fact, talked about it several weeks ago again is the one that Jesus brings up in John 12 that only as you spend your life do you, do you find your life. And that those who hold on to their lives and make their own life and their own promotion, their ambition, they lose everything in the end. And only those who spend their life and lavish it, uh, sometimes even as saints have, as Jesus himself did, to the point of death, they're the ones who gain their lives, here and forever. And we run into that very same thing right here in chapter 4 at a seemingly just transaction at a city gate over property. And yet the... Hesed love, that word H-E-S-E-D, best uh, transliteration, I guess, that Hesed love of God, uh, the, the steadfast, unfailing love of God that we've seen again and again show itself in the lives of these people for one another, it shines right here as well. Now, if you're uh, visiting, you may be a little bit lost here in chapter 4. What in the world is going on here? Uh, in chapter 1, we read of uh, Naomi and her husband Elimelech and their two boys leaving Israel because of a famine and going to Moab. And while at Moab, she loses her husband and her two sons after the two sons marry Moabite women. And urging her daughter-in-laws to return to their homeland, return to the better opportunity to have a husband and belong to their family and everything they've ever known, uh, one of them, Orpah, does go back, but as we know, Ruth clings to Naomi and says uh, that pledges herself to be uh, her people will be her, uh, your people will be my people. She says that your God will be my God. And so this glorious uh, declaration of her faith in Yahweh, apparently the life of this family and the life of Naomi had drawn her after Yahweh and she would not be turned away. And even as Naomi returns, because the famine is over and they re are returning back to Jerusalem in chapter 1, and she declares her emptiness and the bitterness of her life because she's lost everything. She went out full. She came back empty. It's still got as a, a little background, but there's Ruth. 
There's this confessing Moabite woman who apparently was a pagan idol worshiper, but now she worships Yahweh and she's coming back. The way the literature is laid out there, the writer is underscoring, but there's Ruth and she's there. So, second chapter, we see Ruth taking the initiative to uh, sustain herself and her mother-in-law by going to glean in the fields. Boaz is introduced in the first verse as this guy who happens to be a, a redeemer, a related uh, a, a, a relationship to uh, Naomi or to Elimelech, her husband. So uh, we don't have time, of course, but she goes into the fields. She meets Boaz. Boaz showers her with good things, gives her food, provides for her all the way through harvest. But that's it as far as chapter 2. And so uh, Naomi takes the initiative in chapter 3 to get something further going. And so she sends Ruth in the middle of the night to the threshing floor to make a proposal, basically, to Boaz. For Ruth to propose marriage. For him to act as the man who's related to the family, related to Elimelech to act on their behalf and to take her as his wife and to give them uh, descendants that would save their lives, in effect, in terms of that culture. And we'll talk about that in a minute. And so he responds and he says, I will do it, however, there's another Redeemer closer to me. There's someone else who has first right uh, to redeem you. And so I will go and speak to him. If he doesn't redeem you, I will do it. That's where we left in chapter 3. Now, of course, as readers, we were kind of thrown off by this other redeemer. We're like, we want to see the deal settle that night. You know, let's go ahead and make the proposal. Let's have the wedding the next day. Let's get on with this. Because we've been thinking Boaz and Ruth are going to get together. But here's another little monkey rich, it seems, thrown into the deal. So chapter 4 is the final uh, unveiling of what happened that next day. And we end chapter 3 with Naomi saying, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So she urges her to be comforted. She knows that uh, Boaz is going to act quickly. Now, uh, in chapter 4, we have basically this progression Uh, There's, in the first couple of verses, the convention, that is, the bringing everybody together, the primary parties. Boaz, the first redeemer, and then the elders who will act on behalf of them, who will notarize and ratify the decision that is made. And then you have, that's in verses 1 and 2. Then verses 3 through 8, there's the negotiation. So there's the convening or convention, then there's the negotiation, Then the declaration in verses 9 and 10, the ratification, we might call it. And to keep my cations going, the finally, the blessification, okay? (laughs) If you can think of a better word, go ahead. Um, But basically what they're going to do is they're going to meet on it. They're going to talk about it. They're going to stamp it, done, and then they're going to bless it good, Okay? That's, what the, that's what's going to happen. We're going to meet, we're going to talk, then they're going to declare it and stamp it done, and then they're going to bless the uh, proceedings. So, it begins then uh, with the 
that, that Boaz went and sat at the gate. That's an indication that he has business to do in the gate. The gate is the place for business, and he sits there and shows that he has some business. And then, just like we had seen in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, this word, behold, it's, it's saying basically, and wouldn't you know that the guy walked right by? The, the Redeemer. Just like it says, wouldn't you know, after introducing Boaz, when Ruth was working in the fields, she wanders into Boaz's field. How about that? And then the next verse, and here's another thing, Boaz shows up right after that, indicating that look how God is orchestrating this. And so we're getting that same feel here. The Redeemer uh, shows up. And it shows us again, of course, there are no chances in your life. Everything is ultimately from the hand of God. The one who only does you good, who only promotes your good as he's proven in giving his son for your good. And so, uh, as Jeremiah 32 says in the New Covenant, he never turns away from doing us good. He rejoices to do us good. He says, I will do good with all my heart and soul. And so, we can know that whatever providences are occurring, they're not accidents. It is the mighty hand of God orchestrating our lives just as surely as He was now. And He always has His infinite, unchanging good purpose for you. And He sealed it in the blood of Jesus Christ for you. That is one of the great messages of this uh, book. So, they convene. Now, the issue of the land... This is the first time we've heard the mention of the land. And believe you me, there are books, there's a book after book after book and article after article after article trying to understand the exact details of this transaction. Against the backdrop of of material in Deuteronomy 25 uh, that has to do with uh, a brother taking on responsibility for uh, his own brother who dies and taking responsibility for that widow. For the material in Genesis 38, where we have that same action, um, and all of the land details in uh, the first books of the Bible. So I'm going to try to give you some background so you can appreciate the importance of what's happening here and then some detail as to what nuance of things we think is happening. And there's uh, some unsureness, but uh, in my uh, conviction, this is the best description of what was happening at this time. And if there's a little bit of difference here and there, it doesn't make any final difference. But but these are important things and, and very good for us to think about. So as we think about the land... Uh, let's go back to uh, Adam and Eve in the garden. You know, it's almost like I was born at a young age, you know, <laughs> starting start back at the beginning. But the command was that they were to be fruitful and to the whole earth was to, of course, be dedicated up to the glory of God. And the whole earth was be, to be used for the glory of God and for the good of mankind. Now, because of man's sin, his dominion over the land turned quite poisonous. And so, here's his creation in chapter 2. He falls into sin in chapter 3. The whole earth is judged in chapter 6 in the flood. You may not remember this, but or some don't know it, but that early the flood occurred showing the rapid descent of man left to his own. Man quickly destroys himself and the earth. 
And then soon after the restoration in chapter 9, and it, it's, it reads as a recreation of the world because the flood was a de- devolution, a decreation. The, the waters that had separated water and land now became all water again. The, the world was covered in curse. Now again the earth is created. And he says to Noah, be fruitful and multiply. It's a repeat of Genesis 1. And then in chapter 11, what do we have? Mankind is building the Tower of Babel now. And God has to scatter mankind again and and judge mankind. So chapter 12 with Abraham is built against, it's against that backdrop of the, the, the sin of man into sin. And here God declares I will be your God and I will place you on a patch of land where, in effect, he's going to recreate, or at least ideally, Eden will be recreated so that the garden will be again started in one small place, at least an image of the garden. It's interesting that in the temple itself, garden imagery surrounded you in the temple. It's as though the temple was saying, through my action of redeeming you, I have restored you to intimate fellowship and to paradise before me. And that, of course, was the centerpiece of Israel, was the temple and the restoration of of God and the restoration of paradise for his people. That was the symbolism then. And it was, as one writer, Ulrich, has written, it was down payment on paradise restored. See, the land of Canaan was a down payment on the ultimate restoration of the world. A little picture of that ultimate restoration. A small model, like a little ship's model of a real battleship. Here's the little model of the final thing, of the new heavens and the new earth. And so it's interesting that we read in Psalm 37, verse 4, that the meek shall inherit the the land. And Jesus says, uses that in the Beatitudes, the meek shall inherit the earth. So the, the inheritance of the land is a picture of inheriting the earth so that Paul is able to say in Romans 4.13 that, uh, I'm sorry, that Abraham uh, was an heir of the world, it says. Abraham was an heir of the world, chapter 4, verse 13 of Romans. Now, it doesn't mention specifically the world. It talks about the land of Canaan with him. But you see, that's a symbol of the people of God, the sons of Abraham who now belong to Jesus Christ, will inherit this whole world. And Canaan was a picture of that. And so, our inheritance is inviolable. It it cannot be violated. It cannot be taken from us. As Peter says in chapter 1 of his letter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What is this living hope that we have? To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. We just saw from Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which in effect is saying nothing can separate us from this intimate fellowship, this blessedness with God that we will have forever. 
And you know Jesus talked about the treasure in heaven that uh, moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. So that, why is that important? It's important because ownership of the land in the Old Testament stood for, was a pre-picture of, a little model of our inheritance in heaven. Our inheritance of the new heavens and the new earth that cannot be taken away from us. And so there was incredible provision in the Old Testament that no family's land could be taken away from them. Ultimately. In fact, to be completely cut off from the land, it says in Deuteronomy 25 that the, if, if a, a woman's wife dies and the, the danger is of his land being lost, it says that that must not happen so that his name won't be blotted out. That's the same word used in the flood, that he blotted out the earth. So... In, in, a, in this picture, belonging to the land and having a part of the land is a symbol of belonging to God, having fellowship, having God Himself. It's odd to us. How could, it, how could the land play such a prominent role? How could it be so important? But it stood for the, the absolute inheritance of the saints of God in this uh, picture of ultimate things. And so families were given permanent ownership of the land. Larger family clans were given large portions, and then individual families were given portions within that clan. So if an individual family lost because of irresponsibility or natural disaster or even uh, poor decision, they lost their land, then one of the other people of the clan could, if this land has to go up for sale, come in and buy the land so that it doesn't go outside the clan. And so they become a redeemer of the land. And then they hold on to it. They don't have it ultimately. They hold on to it until that part of the family can get that land back. And if they can't for many years, then at the time of the Jubilee, every 50 years, all the land reverts back. That's how strong the provision was. Even if you lost the land and couldn't buy it back for 20 years, then in the year of Jubilee, it comes back to you automatically. Now, we've got to see in that God will not allow your provision. He will not allow your inheritance, your interest in Jesus Christ and all the riches and wealth of Christ that is yours. It cannot be taken away from you. It will not be taken away from you. That's one encouraging thing that we learn from the, these laws. Um, so, two things could happen. Either the Redeemer steps in and buys it so that it doesn't have to go outside the family, or if nobody was able to at the time, it may be sold outside the family, and then the Redeemer comes along and says, I'm going to get that back from outside of the family, bring it back inside the family until this part can get it back. So one of two ways, either you stop it from going outside of the family or if it has gone outside of the, the clan, so to speak, then you work to bring it back. Now, um, in this, uh, we're going to see in this particular instance, it looks like the best evidence is that when he left uh, Bethlehem, Elimelech sold his land 
to someone outside the family. And what it means when you sell the land, there's a word called usufruct. Don't you use that word every day. U-S-U-F-R-U-C-T. That means use, usus and et fructus. That is, it's use and it's fruit. In other words, you don't have the land ultimately, but you've bought the privilege to use the land and to get the fruits off the land. So even though it ultimately is in the name of this person uh, who originally has the land, he doesn't now have use and fruit of that land. Someone else does. And so apparently for Elimelech all this time when they were out of uh, in Moab, someone else had the use and fruit of that land. Now, uh, Naomi can't get it back. She has no means to get it back. And so this other fellow has first right to get that land back and then have the use and fruit of it. And Boaz has the second right to get that land back and have the use and fruit of it. Now, just a word uh, that Yahweh obviously in Israel uh, required. Ulrich writes this, God required them to respect each other's access to the means of production. In Israel, affirming a person's place in the covenant community and promoting his or her contribution uh, to the community took precedence over profits. The bottom line was not the bottom line. The law of Jubilee reinforced God's ownership of the land and protected everybody's share by wiping the slate clean and giving everybody a fresh start. The new Eden was about redemption, not survival of the fittest or unbridled capitalism. Land was the stage on which Israel lived out its covenant relationship. And so taking care of one's dependence and promoting their full participation in the covenant took precedence over personal wealth or ambition. So there are two things working here. A manifestation of Hesed love where you care for one another and it's the very structure of the law encourages that mercy to one another, no matter how you lost your land. But it also is a picture of the ultimate inheritance that we have in Christ Jesus. And so Boaz gathers 10 elders and likely other people are coming in. He really gathered a pretty large crowd. I think, and many do, that he knew what this guy was like. And so he wants to make the the crowd pretty big. He wants this to be a public uh, question and answer kind of period. So he throws out the first proposal. You have first right to get uh, Naomi's land. Apparently the land uh, came to Naomi from her husband, Elimelech. Uh, And she can't buy it back. So he says, you have the challenge of getting this. And the interesting thing, this is a really a neat situation for this guy because since Elimelech has no heirs, since he has no descendants, at the time of Jubilee, the first redeemer here can just keep the land because there's nobody to revert it back to. So, cool deal, you know? I mean, he's got nothing to lose. He can get this land and he can make a permanent addition to his land from now on. And he is all about that. And so he says, uh, they sat down. He says, Naomi he describes the situation. I thought I would tell you of it. Buy it back in the presence of those sitting here. If you will redeem it, redeem it. 
if you will not tell me that I know, and, and I will do it. He says, I will redeem it. Okay, so dust settles, and we're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're, you're supposed to get Ruth, and y'all are supposed to get married. And, you know, there's a little pause there, a little pregnant pause for us, and maybe even a pause that day. And then Boaz says, um, almost like Columbo, you know, he's about to walk off. And Columbo says, ah, I got one more question. You know, and it's always the devastating question that unravels everything. You think it's over, but it's not over. So I think Boaz has planted a little Columbo, and he's drawn him out now that he wants the land. And he says, one more thing, if you get the land, you have to marry Ruth as well and raise up descendants for Elimelech. Oh, so I would buy the land, the rights, the use and fruit of the land, but then no matter what, in however many years, the land's going to her descendant. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You're going to act on behalf of Elimelech and his clan and restore the land to them. That's what you're, going to, you're supposed to do. Um, so he was on the horns of economics and ethics. And he wasn't bound by law. Here's the interesting thing. He wasn't bound by law, but it would be disgraceful that he would now clearly act on his behalf financially, but not act on Ruth's behalf. That wouldn't look good. But he didn't want to commit to get her and the danger of what he might lose in the process or the lack of gain that he thought he was going to have. And so he just gave up his whole right to the whole thing. And we're all like, yay! <laughs> Boaz gets Ruth, all right, this is great. So uh, he says, you can have the right. And then uh, Boaz takes it and they make an oral contract. That was a, a, a time of not great literacy. Uh, it's a largely non-literate society. And so instead of a written contract, there is an oral contract and this was like an, uh, the way to notarize the action, not with the document, but this declaration that he makes and everyone saying, we bear witness. And so then it was real, it's legal, it was the way they formalized it, they made it valid at that point. And then in the wake of that declaration, they uh, announced these blessings and, of course, they, he, he has to pause to tell you this custom, that the, the giving of the sandal. And apparently, the best they know is that this would be a symbol of, now you have the right to get the land. This wasn't an actual transaction because no money's mentioned. Always in those cases where they're actually buying something, they indicate the price that's paid. But right here, he's just giving him the right now. You can go and repurchase this land. It can be yours to do with whatever you want to. I give you first right to act on, on behalf of Ruth in this, this piece of land. And, of course, then the great blessing that comes uh, to them, uh, verse 11, for all the people kind of acting like a chorus, you know, kind of like the Greek choruses where they would make comment. Uh, the people say, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman, verse 11, who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. This is really amazing because Jacob's two wives, Rachel and Leah, and their handmaids who were given as uh, uh, surrogates to bear children, that's where the 12 tribes of Israel came from, from these two women, Rachel and Leah. And in this dark time of the judges, 
These two women are mentioned who God used to build Israel to begin with. And in this dark time of of the judges, uh, they're saying, may she, Ruth, be like them and may Israel be built up through her. And what's so wonderful is Israel was built up through her because David came. And through David, the, the land gained peace and new peace under Solomon because of what David did. And so this blessing comes to wonderful fruition. And then the the latter part of the blessing, they mention, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. It's a great reminder of the weird and sometimes dark and not altogether nice uh, events that happened in the very heritage of Jesus Christ. Uh, Because Perez was... Uh, an ancestor of Christ. But he was born because uh, Tamar's first husband, Er, and Er, these are sons of, of Judah, her first husband, Er, uh, was evil. It says the Lord took his life. Well, then Onan took the responsibility, supposedly, of raising an heir for the first brother, like you're supposed to do. So he married Tamar, but he refused to have the kind of relations that would bring about a child. And so God took his life. So there's a third son, Shelah. And of course, the way Judah's looking at it, it's like, I've lost two sons with this woman. I don't think I'm going to give her my third son. Instead of looking at the real cause was his own son's uh, evil and, and disobedience. So she went on for a while. Shelah was not obviously not going to be given to her. So she proposed as a prostitute. Judah had just lost his wife. He's walking by. He sees her. He has relations with her. Later finds out that it is Tamar. She gives birth to twins. One of them is Perez. You'd think you might kind of hide that away. You know, like that's a part of our life that we really don't want to talk about, our background. But it's made prominent. And even beginning in verse 18, when it's given the genealogy of David, it says, here are the generations of Perez. Perez. It shows the grace and mercy of God, as does the genealogy of of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, that God uses the worst of circumstances and He uses people that don't always do good things and still He accomplishes His purposes. And He takes Ruth, a former uh, pagan worshiper, draws her in in the most unusual circumstances and in the middle of the night is kind of like um, Boaz is like Adam and wakes up and finds a woman there, you know. And God didn't take him from his side. He, he brought her from Moab. He went and fetched her. Not like Abraham's servant who went and got a, a wife for um, his son, but uh, for, for Abraham's son Isaac, that God fetched her in a foreign land and brought her there. And he used this means of bringing about King David and ultimately the birth of Jesus Christ. And so the blessings upon Boaz are announced at this point. And this is to underscore that the man who acts with such unselfish love, such hesed love, blessings of Yahweh are upon him. And we need, to, we need to understand this from the Scriptures. There is the aspect of complete lostness, darkness. We are dead in our sins and trespasses. And purely because of His mercy, He comes and redeems us and changes us. But there's also the element of 
after that change and because of that change and because of the sacrificial love that we pour out for the world, God richly rewards His people. Always talks about rewards. Always talks about God's blessings upon the obedient. Blessed are those who delight in the law and meditate in it day and night. Blessed are the people who observe His law. His law is gracious and good. It brings richness to our lives and to other people's lives. This man is a man of hesed love, unfailing love. Why? Because he carried out the law of God. He obeyed. He gave himself freely. The heart of the Old Testament is you love your neighbor as yourself. And he poured himself out and sacrificed anything and everything he needed to for the benefit of this destitute uh, woman and her daughter-in-law. And so these blessings are a preview of the blessings that Jesus pronounces on those in that day when he says, the sheep will be on my right and the goats on my left. And I say to my sheep, you visited me when I'm in prison and you fed me and, and you gave me water, you clothed me, you did all of these things. He said, well, when did we do this? You did it to the least of these, my brothers. Enter into the joy of your master. See, blessings being reigned in the lives of those who changed by His grace, affected by how He laid down His life, then in turn lay down their lives for others. And I've kept this to right now. It's very interesting, and I want to end with this. It, the English is really sad at this point. In verse 2, uh, I'm sorry, verse 1, when Boaz sees the Redeemer... It says in ESV and NIV, and some other translations it doesn't use this, but it says, turn aside friend. Now, that's misleading. Actually, the word here is what we call a farrago in our a word picture. Uh, the word is it's, it's, it's two words put together that have really no meaning by themselves. He calls them a poloni almoni, a poloni almoni. That's like we would use the word hodgepodge or we use the word helter-skelter where each, neither one of those words means anything but we kind of know what they mean together. Like one of my favorite ones is heebie-jeebies. <laughs> and that's not a word where like heebie means something and jeebie means something, you know. And it's not as though you say, hey, I got the heebies and the jeebies, you know. <laughs> I mean, I don't just have the heebies. I got the jeebies too, both of them. No, it's just the heebie-jeebies, right? I love the far side where the shady character has a table and he's got jars and one of them says heebie-jeebies and the other says willies and, you know, you can buy them, you know. But that's another story. But what does this word poloni almoni mean? It's a way, in fact, in another location in Samuel, it's a way to say of a certain place, it was just such and such a place. It's a way you use... When you don't want to say the name of something or you've forgotten the name of something. It's unlikely that Boaz actually used that term. This is a narrator's work, you see. This is the narrator telling the story. And dear friends, remember who the real narrator here is? It's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is saying of this man, because he wouldn't act in hesed love, because he was only acting out of his own benefit, promoting his own ambition... It was just, oh, I forgot who he was. He just does so-and-so. 
It makes me think of Jesus in that day in Matthew 7 where those say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in your name? Didn't we do another thing in your name? You remember those awful words? I never knew you. I never knew you. It's as though if, if we will not respond to God's hesed love in Christ, and we choose to continue to say, no, I'm going to live for my ambition. I'm going to live for my purposes. I'm going to promote me first and foremost. Then you'll lose everything in the end. And you will be totally forgotten in Judgment Day. And your name will be blotted out forever. But here's, the, here's our tragedy. Every one of us does it. Every one of us, by nature, we have as our personal ambition right here. Me. That's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 5, He died that we who live for ourselves might no longer... He died so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for Him who died and is raised again. So the... The the final end result, the real accomplishment in Christ's work in our heart is that we so see and taste His love that we are set free from our desperate need to promote ourselves. We are set free from our conviction that God is out to get us and we entrust ourselves to His will. We give ourselves in reckless abandon into the hand of this gracious God, and we begin to give ourselves away in some way that looks like what God did for us, with joy. And what happened with Eve is is Satan was able to help destroy her sense of God's generosity. That's the way Sinclair Ferguson put it. So... You think of God as though He's malevolent and destructive instead of gracious. And then Ferguson has this great sentence. In many Christians' life, that distortion of thinking God is basically out to get me, that distortion lingers on like a hangover from our unregenerate past. Well, it's His love. It's His hesed love for us in Christ that enables us to no longer live for ourselves, but to walk in the footsteps of uh, a man like Boaz. And even more, because we have the Lord Jesus Christ, the fullness of God's revelation in Jesus Christ. And so I call you to that great paradox. If you try to hold on to your life, if you try to keep it from God, if you try to regulate it and and think, God, I can't let you get your hands on me. I I can't give myself up to your will. I, I can't be used in the kingdom. Then you'll lose everything. But as you give yourself away to Him and to others, then you gain your life. Will you not entrust yourself to the one who's given His Son to die for you? Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we praise you that you have come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We praise you that you would draw us after yourself. We praise you that you would own us, that, Lord Jesus, you would be our kinsman redeemer, that you are not ashamed to call us brothers, as the writer of Hebrews says, that you gladly own us as your own, 
that you share with us the inheritance which we didn't earn, which we, in fact, had turned our backs upon and despised, even like Israel, the land. We turned our back upon your grace and goodness. We did not believe you, and yet still you came after us and drew us to yourself. We praise you. We praise you that we are sons and daughters of the King. We praise you that we belong in your presence through what Christ has done. We thank you that there is an inheritance that is ours and it is fellowship with you and the new heavens and the new earth that will never be taken away from us. Oh Lord, how gracious you are. Mighty God, you've moved all things in order to bless your people and that's how you get your glory of making us happy in you. Oh Lord, get glory today. May there be people whose hearts are stirred and they turn and they give themselves freely to the love and forgiveness that can be had through Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, thank you. Work in our hearts for Jesus' sake. Amen. The pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. My Lord, my life, my light Oh, come with blissful rain Break radiant through the shades of night And chase my fears away Won't you chase my fears away? Then shall my soul with rapture trace The wonders of the